Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. For most chiropractors, it's fairly standard to perform at least some assessment of the feet with most new patients. Balance, gait, lower limb function are all very much integrated with overall body well-being. So addressing these problems may be critical in helping a patient with a whole range of issues. Today, we're speaking about how to optimize foot function for injury prevention and improved performance. Joining me today to discuss the issue is sports podiatrist, Emily Smith. Emily has over 15 years clinical experience working with uh, Australia's top athletes and teams, including the Wallabies, the New South Wales Institute of Sport, Bangara Dance Theatre, and the New South Wales Swifts. Emily is the Managing Director of Sydney Sports Medicine Centre and the Podiatry Director of Belmain Sports Medicine and Sydney Sports Med Specialists. She has a special interest in the prevention and management of female foot pathology, which has led to research into women's footwear and new methods to reduce the short and long-term ill effects of fashion shoes. This research is coupled with a unique clinical experience that has led to discoveries applicable to athletes and active individuals. Utilising advances in science and technology, Emily has pioneered a list of industry-leading insole products that support optimal foot alignment without compromising shoe style or space. Hi, Emily. Welcome to the ACA podcast. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for having me. So as I alluded to with the introduction there, chiropractors are very much aware of the foot, but apart from the obvious foot pain, when should a practitioner take a really close look at the feet? Yeah, so I think um, any kind of lower limb pain or dysfunction, it's um, a good idea to look at the foot's involvement in that. Um, so basically looking at their single leg stability, um, if their feet are sort of rolling in before their knees start to internally rotate or vice versa, then maybe looking at, um, the foot posture and foot position as a part of maybe that knee pathology and knee pain or anything that goes up into the hip and lower back would probably be a good place to start. Um, and also, I guess with, um, people who are really struggling to get their glutes to activate, um, at sort of looking whether their tib post and the fact that that um, their arch muscles sort of, you know, not uh, allowing their whole leg to start to activate from the ground up and therefore that having um, or playing a big role in sort of their, their glute pathology and um, lack of the ability for them to switch on. So you talk about uh, in your presentations about KPIs of foot function. What do you mean by that and what are these KPIs? So basically looking at um, what are the um, main things that we're going to look at to um, identify if that foot is performing optimally. So looking at their joint congruency and their stability versus an unstable um, joint or a stiff joint and whether that's sort of through their big toe joint, their midfoot, um, you know, into their ankle, that sort of thing. Um, and then also so looking and making sure that there's a bit of a balance between their inversion and eversion. So 
that frontal plane, making sure that they're not, you know, really loaded through that medial arch and therefore tibialis posterior not being able to do its job and perineus brevis kind of over overloading and that pulley system that we want to really make sure is activating well through perineus longus and tibialis posterior. Um, making sure that their soft tissue is in a nice elastic range. So making sure that the there's no soft tissue contracture um, and stiffness through there that could be contributed um, through things like their center of mass being off, which we'll, I think we'll probably chat about a little bit um, later. Um, a big one that I really think is important is looking at their first ray function and getting that plantar flex first ray so that we can create that really nice um, bridge through the arch and get that perineus longus activating well and tib post activating well um, and really making sure that we can get a great push off phase. Um, so which all stems from that, that perineus longus and getting that plantar flexion through the first ray and that anchoring through that big toe joint, basically. Um, another one, which, which is obviously what you guys look a lot at is proximal stability um, and kind of looking at that linkage from the feet up. Um, and then sort of posterior chain activation, which comes a lot from that big toe joint being able to be utilized during propulsion and getting that whole posterior chain to be able to be um, firing up well so that they're able to push through their gait cycle rather than pulling up, which we might chat a little bit about as well. Um, and that comes down to a lot of the, the center of mass and the way that that center of mass is placed, even from the very get-go when they're standing and moving through their, then moving through their sort of their walking gait cycle and into their running gait cycle if they're running. Um, and sort of a, like I was sort of alluding to that high gear propulsion. So getting that big toe joint and that sort of first second um, activation as they're propulsing forwards rather than a low gear propulsion, which would be where they're kind of over supinating at uh, toe off and sort of going around that propulsive phase and losing a lot of that um, gastroxylaus, uh, posterior chain activation. So if we can break that down, and you've spoken about some really good things there, I just want to explore that a little bit further before we get into that um, centre uh, of mass stuff. But if uh, for a chiropractor who's doing an assessment on a patient, clearly, you know, your assessment on the, of the feet will be far more involved than what someone like myself would do. But if we broke it down into a few sort of simple tests, so for example, uh, single leg stance, that's certainly one that I would do both from a lower uh, limb perspective and also a cerebellar perspective. I uh, would visually look at um, the, the arches and look for bunions and those sorts of things. I might get them to do a squat to see um, if, they, if that um, uh, function is maintained through that activity. What are some of the other sort of simple tests that you think it might be worthwhile the chiropractor doing at this point with a patient? I think looking, so probably looking at their first ray function. So even when they're just sitting in a chair on the bed, just seeing how that first ray is able to plantar flex. So is their tibant really kind of contracted and tightened? Is it pulling that whole first ray, first metatarsal head uh, into dorsiflexion? Um, yep. And so, you know, how much of that is then going to contribute to them when they're actually standing on the ground? Um a part of that would then when you're in there, when they are standing on the ground is getting them to activate their tibialis posterior and seeing if they can get it to activate without their tib ant coming on, which basically if their tib ant's coming on all the time, um, really inhibits that tib post to be able to fire properly, which means that we've kind of that whole chain is starting to dysfunction, you know, sort of straight off the bat. Um, that then comes into kind of how flat they are in their stance. So when they're standing 
on the ground? Is their foot, you know, in a really sort of pronated, unstable position or is it sort of looking like it's got a nice bridge where everything's kind of in a nice congruent space? Um, what else would we be looking at? I think probably then I I will often do um, sort of getting them to raise onto their onto their, the balls of their feet going into a bit of a calf raise, double leg and then single leg and seeing mm-hmm. what their natural mechanics is, whether it is to come up through the first, second toe or whether it's to naturally over supinate, which most yeah. of the time because of the windlass mechanism, they're going to, they're going to supinate. So it's, yep. which then kind of means that their posterior chain automatically isn't really being switched on appropriately as they start to um, move forward. So just, um, I guess, kind of statically, that's what I'd be looking at and then moving into more of a dynamic um, sort of assessment. So looking at their hopping, um, seeing what then happens with their feet, what happens to their knees, what sort of collapse we're talking about there, um, you know, and kind of that, I guess, goes along with your single leg um, stance position as well. And then moving into more of a standing, static standing position and gait cycle. That's really good. Now, I've got two questions out of what you've said uh, just there. The first one, just uh, as far as tibialis posterior activation, can you explain how you do that or how you get the patient to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So just getting them standing sort of evenly through left and right feet and just asking them to lift their arch up basically from that tail and avicular space. So sort of just in front of their heel bone, asking them to lift. I always say to them, it's like a fish hook pulling your arch up from that back part of the arch. So yep. that they're able to get tib pose to activate with their, but sort of maintaining their first toe joint on the ground. So they're creating that yep. nice bridge. So if they can't it, like maintain that big toe joint on the ground, then that tib ant is naturally going to be overfiring, pulling that yep. first off the ground. So often if that's happening, I just ask them to shift their center of mass slightly forward. So that kind of can get them to anchor their big toe. But yes. often there will be a bit of a weakness with tib post anyway, because it naturally has a pretty hard job to do. Um, and so there's probably going to be a, be a little bit of a weakness there, but it's more, I usually say it's more of a malfunction. It's like, it's just not being allowed to be used um, because everything else is kind of putting it under too much load and actually switching it off, which in my opinion comes down a lot to, to Tibant <laughs> being, yes. you know, being just too, yep. too, yeah, too overactive and, and too dominant really. And so when you do that test, do you also observe the, the tib ant or palpate it or is it just really the, toe, the action in the toe that is the giveaway? Yeah, so it's you can see it. You can switch on. You can see it switch on. So basically through that whole sort of tendon coming across uh, the yeah. ankle joint, you can see it switch on. And a lot of the time people just can't get it to switch off. So I'll often yeah. help them and sort of show them the movement that I'm trying to create um and just kind of ask them to tip forwards that little bit so that they're in a little bit of ankle dorsiflexion sorry yeah ankle dorsiflexion so that they're able to get that big toe onto the ground um but yeah it's it's more just looking for the tendon activation it'll just it'll fire up and the other thing was and i expect most people will know this but just to make sure we've got the fundamentals right can you please explain the windless mechanism yes so the windlass mechanism is essentially what the plantar, like it's sort of the overarching mechanism behind the plantar fascia. So basically um, when you're sort of raising onto your toes, that plantar fascia has to contract. So as it winds up around the big toe and into the lesser metatarsal heads, um, as you're raising onto your toes, that plantar fascia has to contract and that's the windlass mechanism. Um, so if 
the windlass mechanism is working well, you'll be able to raise through your first and second toe. If it's a bit overactive, it's got you're naturally going to sort of roll out towards that third, fourth, fifth metatarsal head, which usually what happens because the windlass mechanism, as we know, um, you know, you as you come up onto your toe, you are going to supinate. So yes. we kind of want to we want to have it so that we're in a more efficient position to be able to propulse forwards, which is through that first and second toe. And the main test you do for that is getting someone to go up onto their toes. Do you do it passively by having them stand and lift the first toe and see how much supination happens? Yes, you can. So in my opinion, like you can do it when they're standing passively and then you sort of raise sort of their their toe. But it's, in my opinion, it's more functional if you get them onto their big toe and sort of raising through it themselves yeah. um, because that's what more identifies what's going to be happening when they're they're walking um, and running as well and pushing and jumping and all that sort of thing. Whereas um, I think a lot of the time when we're wearing shoes that are a bit too sloppy on the feet and, you know, sort of thongs and that sort of thing, you're naturally in that position where you're going to be pulling that big toe up anyway, which sort of overloads yeah. the fascia. Um, yeah. I don't think that's a, a relevant test. I think it's something that we actually try and stamp out clinically rather than right. kind of looking for it that way. Yep, good. All right, let's talk now about um, centre of mass and that posterior versus anterior shift. And maybe you might want to explain what that actually means before delving too much into it. Yes. So basically what I've found, so I've been looking at this for a few years and a lot of it sort of stemmed from the whole um, barefoot um, revolution that we saw, you know, 10 years ago come through. Um, and what I've really found is that when people stand posturally, they're either, they sort of create a triangle in their centre of mass. So they kind of have their shoulders back, their pelvis forward, and then their weight sort of going back onto their backs of their heels rather mm -hmm. than everything being in a nice sort of great position and then sort of tipped forwards, which is going to create the same thing as far as your center of mass and it being in a nice equilibrium. But when you're in that triangle form, you're sort of jamming through your lower back, you lose your core muscles, you lose your glute muscle function, and you become really overactive through your quads and your hip flexors and yep. your T-band as well, which is where it kind of comes into the feet. So um, I think a lot of that the, the way that we've kind of adopted that as humans comes from the fact that we're just sitting a lot of the time and we kind of lose our posterior chain um, and therefore our anterior chain becomes more dominant and we kind of work out ways to maintain that equilibrium in a more lazy fashion. So um, that's so a posterior center of mass is where you've kind of got weight that's weighted backwards um, mm -hmm. versus an anterior center of mass where you've got weight that's sort of weighted forwards. Really what I'm trying to achieve with my patients is that nice centered center of mass. But yep. to get there, you have to kind of push their center of mass a little bit more anteriorly to, to get to that nice centered space because they're already in a posterior center of mass. Yes. So does that make sense? Yes, it does. I, it's interesting. And, and, and I'll just let the listeners know that... Um, uh, there, that we will be doing a webinar with Emily uh, in mid-March. So you'll get to see the visuals here, which you won't get to see on a podcast. But uh, for me, that uh, that posterior center of mass almost reminds me a little bit of the super relaxed cartoon character who's uh, just a little bit sway back. Um, you know, the shoulders uh, are kind of more likely to be rounded even though they're back. Their head might be forward even though their overall weight is back towards the heels. Um, exactly. so if we talk about, um, and, and, the, uh, obviously the anterior one, someone who's more kind of ready to go and might be, have an overactivity, I would imagine the posterior chain because yeah. of that. Um, so what are the other 
things to look for that might be classic for someone who's more posterior center of mass versus in anterior center of mass? Other signs other than just the postural stuff you talked about? Yeah, I think somebody who is just extremely quad dominant, tight hip flexors, overactive tib ant, um, can't switch on their glutes, sort of poor um, sort of transverse abdominus type control, um, rounded shoulders, like you're saying, that protruding sort of head. So um, one of the classic signs that I sort of see is where you've got a guy who stands with his sort of um, pelvis forward and he's like kind of like that pub position where he's crossing yes. his arms, that, you know, and sort of leaning back into his heels. Um I think once you kind of see it, you will you'll keep seeing it, um, which I yes. think is where the visuals come in on the in the webinar. Um, but probably, you know, from a more Cairo perspective, would pe- people with kind of you know chronic headaches and that sort of thing coming from that really tight neck, um, yep. because obviously they're protruding their neck forwards to maintain that center of mass, but also to be able to push like drive themselves forwards rather yes. than everything kind of being driven forwards from the posterior chain, they're kind of being, they're pulling themselves forwards. Yep. So it's actually quite easy to get somebody to center themselves once you kind of know what you're looking at. It's And then in my opinion, it's sort of once you get that center of mass right, everything starts to stick from there. Whereas if yep. they're constantly in that poor postural position, it's you're chasing your tail the whole time. Yep. Yeah. So. So if we were to talk in broad terms um, to help people with retraining here, uh, obviously there is a, a potential orthotic um, opportunity for, for some of these people, and we'll get into a little bit more of that in a moment. But what are some other things that you might consider? I mean, these are the standard uh, patients that present to chiropractors all the time, and we're talking about sort of postural retraining, a lot of uh, extensor activation, glute activation type stuff. Um, what are some of the things that you think of as a, as a podiatrist as far as maybe take-home exercises or, or particular things that you might need to do to help them? Yes. So I think that a lot of um, we kind of need to undo it a little bit first before you can yeah. like kind of have to undo it to then build it back up again um, yes. because without changing the dominant uh, well, without kind of starting to, I guess, switch off in very loose terms, like, and then retrain, um, it's hard to, you can't kind of get those, the uh, less dominant muscles to start to fire up. So I would be doing a lot of stretching and releasing through their anterior chain um, and starting with their standing posture. So literally just getting them to stand with their chest sort of upwards without sort of, you know, being too proud because you don't want to be sort of getting your um, your shoulders right back where they're still back on their heels. You want them just to yep. be opening up from their chest, which automatically most of the time gets their pelvis in a much better position. I find rather yep. than mucking around with their pelvic position, which people have a hard time grasping, you know, you got to yes. tilt the pelvis this way or that way. Actually, yep. a lot of the time, if you just get them to stand with a, a little bit more kind of openness through their chest and standing so that they're facing their eyes upwards rather than down on the ground, that can kind of just get, every, get everything sort of standing more proud, loosely. Um, and then with a little bit of, I call it leaning tower of Pisa. So just getting them from their ankles, slightly tipping forwards, but it's not coming from their hips. It's not coming from their neck. They're not pushing themselves forward. It's all coming just from that little bit of dorsiflexion through their ankles. That then gets that shift so that they, if you were to drop a plumb line from their ear down to their feet, that plumb line kind of goes nice and straight down to just in front of that ankle. So not 
on the heel, but just in front of the ankle and not towards the toes. And they should be able to feel at a foot level that everything's kind of in a um, nice even state. So there's weight evenly distributed through the whole foot rather than it being back on the heels or they're not yep. scrunching their toes. One probably I should have mentioned before, but one really common sign is their toes that just keep popping up with them yep. when their center of mass is back, that their extensors are extremely overactive because it, Literally, their job is to stop them from falling backwards. Yes. So just getting their toes on the ground so they're just nice and even makes a really big difference. So getting them so that they are releasing through that anterior chain and then changing that center of mass when they're standing and then maybe adding in a little bit of kind of glute activation and, um, you know, core work with that, which I leave up to other, you know, I leave up to physios and chiros to do that work. I don't sort of engage in that but I, I do get people to go and see somebody for it um but it's more about identifying the fact that if you're doing all that work already if you you know you're hammering yourself at the gym and you're doing all this posterior chain work but if you're standing with this poor center of mass and you're walking and running with this poor center of mass then all that work kind of gets lost it you know but for those people it will be easier to to bring that forward whereas the people that don't do that work they have to sort of you know start to work on it but um, that's kind of how I would do it would be starting with stretching, releasing, changing that center of mass, working out a, a good sort of strength and stability program around that to really optimize that posterior chain activation. And then looking at footwear as well. And an orthotic sometimes is a really good way to do it. But with footwear being in really flat soled shoes is always going to put your center of mass back on your heels. So right, if people yes. are really... Yeah, and often a flat sole shoe will also end up with a negative heel because you wear it mm. out at that heel and that puts yeah. them back further. So if they're wearing really flat sole shoes, we kind of need to encourage them to go into something that has more of a pitch on it. So yeah. they're a, they naturally are put in that slightly pitched position so yeah. that they can then carry that through. Um, and then, you know, for a pitch, I mean, sort of eight mils, 10 mils, we're not talking hugely high heeled. Um, no. But then uh, an orthotic that really facilitates sort of that tib and uh, sorry tib post activation and switching off tib ant um, and sort of well not or deactivating tib ant and, and sort of letting it just do its job as a as a decelerator and an ankle dorsiflexor rather than an arch muscle um, is really kind of what I then go into, which is um, you know making sure that we can get them so that they're in a position of high gear propulsion when they're pushing forwards, which comes from a, a valgus post in that forefoot of an orthotic, um, literally just sort of bringing the ground up to the foot on that outside edge of the foot so that they're holding that nice propulsive position rather than letting them over-supinate um, at propulsion. So Very good. Yeah, trying, trying to set them up within their gait cycle so that they're ready for that really nice propulsive phase rather than over-correcting with an orthotic that kind of... Um, inhibits that 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 nice normal motion you just want to kind of have it so that your motion is optimized rather than blocked and now i want to speak now just a bit about gait and just broadly get your thoughts on what you look for in that swing and stance phase of gait yeah so i believe like i've sort of alluded to but it all starts with the propulsive phase so really keeping an eye on what they're doing when they're propulsing forwards and trying to get them so that they're um, in as best possible position at propulsion. And that comes with um, calf activation exercises and strength work. 
Um, it comes with being able to get that that uh, first rate of plantar flex and the FHL to be you know strong enough to be able to lever that that person forwards, um, and just making sure that there's a, they've got enough pronation happening at their mid stance to go into their um, forefoot load so that they are able to get up through that big toe. Um, and we really want to try and look for something that person pushing off rather than pulling up. So we're getting that that plantar flexion. Um, through that ankle rather than, you know, the toes pulling up and um, kicking off that swing phase so that they're getting enough height through their swing phase so they're not having to turn their foot outwards and use their extensors and their perineus longus and and tip uh, ant to kind of get that height through the swing phase. We really want to try and just get that natural height through their swing phase. Um, so if they're looking like they're kind of circumducting around and using all their toes to get there, it means that their, their propulsive phase has sort of failed and we need to kind of work more yeah. on that. Um, that can also go into sort of that hip and knee flexion as well. If they're really sort of too flexed in their hip and knee, something's gone amiss at that propulsive phase. Um, and then trying to have it so that when they're striking the ground, that there's sort of um, uh, appropriate control with that, some minimal collision forces. So they're not hitting the ground really hard. They're just sort of hitting the ground on that, sort of central position of their heel, not too lateral. So I know we get taught that you should be striking the ground on the lateral part of the foot, but I I think that that sort of centred to slightly lateral position is a really good place to be so that it gears up to be sort of moving through that mid stance in a really nice equilibrium rather than kind of rolling around that, um, that mid stance and sort of most people will then go from being really lateral to really medial. We kind of just want to yeah. facilitate that nice even flow through the gait cycle. Um, and then obviously having some pronation through mid stance so that they're getting that nice shock absorption um, without having their joints sort of in a position where they're not congruent anymore and we're getting that that sort of plantar fascial overload and tip pose being switched off because it's having to work too hard. So we, we want to find that really nice um, balanced pronation so that we're kind of getting the best of both worlds. Um, I think most people are able to identify somebody that really overpronates too much, and it's more about kind of getting tip post to to activate appropriately um, without having to be overloaded. Mm. I want to talk then if we go from that um, nice, slightly supinated through to slightly pronated walk stance uh, to to running and um, and the value of having. Uh, the I guess missing out on that heel landing and going to more of a forefoot or a, or a midfoot type of, of running. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, so I don't really subscribe to being, you know, I don't push everybody into a forefoot strike pattern. Um, you know, if people are more naturally a heel strike, I'll, I'll work with that unless there's a reason not to. Um, so, you know, if they're getting recurrent Achilles issues or they're getting, um, you know, they've got heel spurs and that sort of thing that are really sort of, they can't run unless they're on their ball of their foot, then absolutely I'll sort of um, sort of direct them into being more of a midfoot to forefoot striker. Um, I think that obviously with a heel strike, you get a landing, you get a breaking force as you land. Um, so I think that there is a more efficient way to heel strike, which is to slightly shorten the, the stride. So that you are kind of you're, you're heel striking, but you are loading very quickly into more of that mid in, into that mid stance of the running gait cycle, rather than having a really long stride where they're sort of 
have that really heavy braking force and, you know, leg in full extension, that sort of thing. Um, I think that people need to be able to talk, uh, need to be able to be taught to run properly with a midfoot and forefoot strike because we need to make sure that they're not striding out in front of themselves. They have to be striking under their centre of mass and sort of leading with their chest, which comes back to that kind of leaning tower of Pisa. Yes, um, yep. And, yep. It, and it really means that they have to have a really strong posterior chain to be able to maintain that. So um, if they don't have a really strong posterior chain, they're naturally going to be either overstriding or heel striking. So um, I basically just try and facilitate the best possible, um, most efficient running style for that person. Um, But, you know, I think that a four-foot strike pattern is a really nice position to be in if that person is biomechanically sound and able to kind of maintain that safely. Um, and they're in the right shoes for it and, you know, they've trained appropriately and, um, you know, they've been able to um, just make sure that throughout their entire run they're safely four-foot striking, they're not at all overstriding. Okay, that's great. So um, when people talk about podiatrists, apart from thinking about the foot, the next thing I think about is orthotics. So um, can you take us through your rationale? When would you use taping? Is that just for seeing if orthotics may work? When do you use off the shelf? When do you go for custom? Um, what are your general protocols there? So I would normally start with strapping. Um, basically, what you can identify with the strapping is what you need to do with that person. So how that person, um, like, and you can literally do it in the clinic after you've taped them as well. So getting them walking um, without tape, seeing what their, you know, gait cycle is doing. Are they overpronating? Are they underpronating? And then adding that tape in, so whether or not you're giving more of a load eye taping where you're sort of pulling through that arch or whether a, what I call a reverse load eye taping where you're actually everting the foot and offloading the perineus longus and sort of starting to facilitate a little bit more of that, um, that sort of nice high gear push off. But starting with that and seeing what then happens immediately to their pain. So a lot of the time, um, you know, I'll get people hopping and running after I've taped them and their pain is reduced by 50%. And so, you know, and I'm not just talking foot pathology, whether it's knee or um, ITB issues or shins or whatever it would be. Um, And so if that, I know I'm on the right track then that I need to start to control their foot somewhat um, to be able to get that person sort of um, to be able to manage their, their pathology, but also probably as a preventative strategy later as well. Um, there's something going on, a bit wrong with that, the, the kinetic chain there, and we need to kind of start to stabilise that from the feet up. Um, so I usually start with tape, and then I will often use my off-the-shelf orthotic that I've designed as a um, nice interim uh, management. So basically it's you know some you can't have the tape on forever so it's a really nice way to be able to add that into somebody's shoe they can go into their running shoes their football boots um, their casual shoes they can transfer them from shoe to shoe and really get that nice support system um, and see how that plays out so basically if that person then comes back and you know two weeks later and they've had a 70 percent reduction in their pain i know i'm on the right track person's happy they know that they're on the right track um, and then potentially a custom orthotic might be somewhere to go from there if we need to control them further. If we don't, then usually I'll stay with that off-the-shelf orthotic and um, I can customise them as well. So I can add more of a metatarsal dome if I needed to. I could add a, 
um, an arch cookie with foam and just, you know, kind of give them a little bit more of what they need to customise it um, so that they kind of get the best of both worlds. They've got something that's cost effective um, and transferable between all their shoes, but I've customised it enough to get a better outcome. Um, But then when somebody is, you know, if we're talking about a really recurrent injury um, and they're doing a lot of running or exercise in their more substantial shoes, so their running shoes, their tennis, netball, whatever it is, then often I will do more of a customised orthotic. But um, my philosophy is with custom orthotics that they have to be flexible. They have to provide a spring underneath the foot. They have to kind of optimise the the motion sort of and and enhance the motion rather than block the motion so and a lot of what I do is with that tailor navicular tailor navicular control like I said we want to kind of get that tip post sort of just in front of the heel bone just to lift and then I need we need to kind of let that first ray get down to the ground so that we can get that push off happening well the last thing that we want to do is block up that person's first ray um, which does happen with harder uh, custom orthotics if people aren't careful with it basically yeah i mean it doesn't happen with all of them for sure it really comes down to the the script but um that's where if people are getting blisters underneath their midfoot normally it's because they've blocked up that first ray i'm assuming most of the taping that you do then is is diagnostic rather than an ongoing and you would use rigid tape rather than kinesio tape correct yes yeah. it is I, I do a lot of so a part of my gate my gait um, assessment is looking at them within their gait cycle with the tape on their feet and working out exactly what I want to do with the orthotic or with my shorter term plan. Um, and so that is sort of mucking around with tapes and paddings on that person's foot during the consultation. And then I most of the time will leave that on their feet um, and sort of, you know, spend four to seven days with them taped. And then um, that leads me down kind of my diagnostic path of what we need to do next. So if that person comes back and says, you know, actually it sort of, it helped for 10 minutes and that was it, then I know that I need to do something a bit more substantial with that person's foot posture. It helped, but it didn't help enough. Um, Or if it didn't help at all, then we need to look at sort of imaging, um, that sort of thing to kind of know exactly what we're dealing with because maybe looking at their foot posture isn't sort of the right path to take at that point in time. Um, it sort of, yeah, it allows me diagnostically to kind of figure out what we need to do. And then very rarely I'll use it longer term. I just think there's better ways to do it. And a lot of the time is that an orthotic will do the same job as that tape, but in a way that's far more convenient for the person and far more comfortable. Definitely. Um, now you're, you've developed your own off the shelf orthotics and we had a bit of a chat before we started recording here um they look fantastic and you mentioned how um when i asked you they they look like they're somewhere between a full length and a three quarter and you've been talking about the propulsion phase maybe you can explain to the listeners why you've designed um your your uh, off-the-shelf orthotics in the way that you have yes so basically i i they're more of a sort of a, a seven eighth orthotic um so they and just behind the toes um, and for a few different reasons. So basically they've got, um, I've used hexagel. So basically little hexagons underneath the ball of the foot, which micro oscillate. So they give really nice padding and cushioning underneath the ball of the foot, but they are uh, multi-height as well. So they're higher through that lateral side of the foot and they're lower underneath the, the first and second toe. So they've got an inbuilt wedge in them that's going to facilitate that nice 
um, high gear propulsion and kind of get that that first ray working well. Um, and so, in my opinion, a three-quarter orthotic really misses a fair amount of that gait cycle that we're trying to optimise. Um, so with the seven eighth orthotic, it basically doesn't take up enough, doesn't take up much space underneath the toes. So the, um, you know, in people who have got bunions and hammer toes or just are wearing tight fitting shoes, they're not going to take up space underneath that essential part of the, the toe box, but they're giving them the support and the cushioning where they need it underneath their metatarsal heads. Um, and then I guess the other way that they're really different to the other orthotics on the market and the other off-the-shelf orthotics is that they have a, um, a valgus post at the rear foot as well. So we're, we're trying to kind of just get that position from that very get-go of heel strike to be more centred rather than letting them really over-supinate at heel strike. Um, they're very flexible as well. They don't, you know, block any kind of movement. They go beautifully into sort of dance shoes and um you know they're they're kind of not going to to inhibit any of that range of movement in the foot fantastic and if people want to uh find out more about your orthotics or purchase them where should they go to so for the moment um just through me so they can email me uh, emily (laughs) emily at emilybraidwood.com um i am sort of chasing some wholesalers. So we'll see how we go with that. But uh, for the moment, just through me is totally fine. Fantastic. Well, we'll make sure we put that um, in the information that goes out to members. Uh, for Now, we've touched on a lot of great stuff today, but clearly this is a podcast and we can only delve into these things so deep. But um, the webinar will give you all the visuals and more information. It's on the 16th of March. So if you're free, then please um, hook up for that. It's also recorded, so if you can't come uh, or participate on March the 16th, then certainly just go to the ACA website um, and you can uh, listen to that webinar at a later stage. Uh, Emily, thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed it and uh, learned plenty of stuff along the way, so uh, I really appreciate your expertise. Awesome. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast.